and I am delighted to be here, and I trust all of you are as well. It's wonderful to be here, and it's so great to have all of you here. And if anybody's here that's visiting, you're warmly welcomed, and I, I, we all hope that you'll come back every chance you can. You know, uh, I've sat in the pew out there lots and lots of times, and I've heard brethren pray for the person that's going to speak. I've done it myself. But it is really humbling to be on the receiving end of that. And I want you, I want you all to know how much I love you and how much I appreciate the prayers uh, on my behalf. And um, I hope and trust that I can do justice to this tonight. Um, <clears throat> so we have to consider tonight the first six verses of chapter four, of course. And really, um, this passage is the last bit of instruction that Paul gives before he shifts over to his final greetings and closing words. And, um, and actually, as we begin in verse 1 and we take a look there at what it says, it's really, I think, kind of a continuation of the thought in chapter 3. Because um, in parallel passages, uh, there are similar instructions given by Paul um, uh, to the groups, um, the one that he, the group that he ends the chapter with prior to this, and, and the group he's going to address first in verse 1 now. Um, and um, so it seems to me like verse 1 might have fit a little better as the ending verse of chapter 3. But um, I'll just leave that before you to consider. Um, <clears throat> so let's begin with uh, verse 1 and question 1, which reads, Who were bondservants? And why did Paul um, tell masters to give them what is just and fair? So I thought it would be helpful if um, we defined a couple of words here because um, uh, it's always good to know what the words mean that are translated into English and, uh, and where they come from. So the Greek word for just is D-I-K-A-I-O-S. And some of you might recognize that um, Perhaps because it's a very similar word and it's probably the same root, I think it is the same root, that the word righteous or righteousness often translated comes from. Um, it's, it's just spelled a little bit differently. Um, but it's used of persons um, in the observance of custom, rule, or right, especially um, in the duties toward God and men, and also the, um, in, in regard to the doing of, of things that are in accordance with right. That's basically what it means. The word fair in the King James is the word, uh, is the word equal. Um, and that word is I-S-O-T-E-S. -E and many of you would know that whenever we see in um, uh, English... A word that has ISO in it, it means equal. An isosceles triangle is a triangle with two equal sides. Um, <clears throat> or isometric exercise is equal measure, um, METR being measure and ISO meaning equal. So, anyway, 
Um, but it means equality. And in this verse, it's joined with um, a phrase that means that which is, or a word that's, that, that means in English that which is. So it, it literally means the equality. Um, and it basically means equity or that which is equitable or fair. I think that's why they translated it fair in the New King James. Um, so in the first place... Um, Bond servants, Chris pointed out in his um, study um, in chapter 3 that, you know, in our time, bond servants could be um, anybody in a position of subordinate, like in a job or in a similar set of circumstances. Um, but here specifically, it means slaves. Um, and, you know, he addressed, this is what I alluded to before, he addressed slaves... Um, in the prior chapter, and now he's addressing masters. And the answer to the question really is in the verse, um, because um, Paul wants the masters to give their, their slaves or bond servants, that, servants that's, which is just and fair, because they have an answer, a master in heaven that they're going to answer to, and they're going to want to be treated well when that comes. They're going to be want, wanting their deeds to be counted for righteousness so they can receive mercy. They're not going to want what's just and fair because none of us do. If we did, we wouldn't have a chance. So, you know, if we think about that really, um, um, what's, what's just and fair for us is spiritual death um, because we've all sinned. So um, we want mercy and we want our deeds to be counted for righteousness. We want to be justified. Um, and if masters treat their, their um, slaves well back in this time or employers treat their employees well, vice versa, and so forth, um, then that's exactly what uh, Jesus will look at, 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 at those deeds as. So <clears throat> that's the answer to that. And um, I don't know what the deal is with my voice, but I'm allergic to this building. <clears throat> Every time I come here, there's some chemical or something, and it makes me all gravelly, so bear with me. Um, anyway, uh, question two in verse two, um, what does, um, what does vigilant in prayer mean? Well, be vigilant in the Greek, um, is, um, the, it's the Greek word G-R-E-G-O-R-E-O. It looks like Greg Oreo. It's basically how it's spelled. Um, and um, literally to watch, uh, meaning to keep awake. And here in this specific context, it's talking about spiritual alertness. Um, and so what Paul's doing here is he's basically telling them as they continue earnestly in prayer and he wants them to do that, um, that's very par <clears throat> parallel with what he says in other places about, for, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5, um, to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean to pray continuously and never stop praying and, and, um, and you know, do so every second. Um, we all know that he means to uh, be habitual in prayer and never stop being habitual in prayer and praying habitually. And Paul tells them to be earnest in it um, and to be spiritually alert when they're praying. Um, and he goes on to tell them to accompany their prayers with thanksgiving. Um, so to be vigilant in prayer um, 
is basically to be spiritually alert in prayer, to be um, very conscious of and into what we're, what we're speaking to the Father. Um, very important. And, um, of course, we all, I trust, um, believe that as well, and that's why he wrote it. So not only would the Colossians know, but those of us who read it would know as well. There's, um, that's kind of interesting because we're going we're gonna to kind of touch on that very principle here um, shortly. So we move to question three, which um, basically covers verses three and four. And by the way, um, I had some concern that this might run a little short. Um, now I'm not so concerned because um, I already know that it's past 8.05. So, um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, continuing on, what, does, <clears throat> uh, what is the mystery of Christ? If I can word that right. Um, so I defined the word mystery, and it's the Greek word M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And uh, primarily that which is made known to the initiated, which is like literally what it means. But Vine says about this, Anytime it occurs in Scripture, it's talking about knowledge hidden or concealed uh, before, but is now made known um, by, uh, to those to whom God revealed it and understood by the reader or the hearer of their uh, writings or preaching, basically. And um, it basically always means that whenever we see mystery, 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 and there's lots of places where mystery occurs in the New Testament— that's what it means. It's not a mystery now. It was. It was hidden before, and now it's revealed. And Frank's preached on this, and so most of us here are aware of it. Um, but I'm, it, it, was, it was stated by Vine so emphatically about it, I thought, you know, that uh, that was really interesting because uh, it corroborates things already preached here. <clears throat> so I define the word manifest, and it's the Greek word P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. And um, it means to make visible, clear, or known, actually meaning to uncover, lay bare, or reveal. Um, and so basically, and um, it, this is what Vine says about the phrase mystery of Christ. It basically means that... Um, that Christ is God revealed in human form, not meaning that he's the Father, but that he's divine. We know that. That, uh, that he died, was raised from the dead, and has the whole universe subject to him um, uh, now till the end of time. Which point he's going to turn the church and everything over back to the Father, as we already know. Um, and... <clears throat> What Paul says here in, in this passage um, is that a door would be open for them so that he could preach that and make that known and know how to make it known and well understood by, by what he's preaching. And it's interesting because, um, you know, really in this passage, the mystery of Christ has to include the idea too. Um, that's kind of like the mystery of the gospel and, and that we studied in Ephesians. 
because, um, and that is that the Jews and Gentiles would be brought together into one body. And the reason is, um, he mentioned the fact that for which he's a prisoner, and that's the very reason that he's in chains, that he's, that he's a prisoner, is because of preaching that very idea. Um, and he's asking them um, that a door of opportunity would be open so that he could preach it um, and, and, and make it well known and well understood. Um, and that would have been a real challenge in that time. Um, <clears throat> So that, um, that's really what verse 4 is all about, that, um, um, that he could speak in such a way that, that made it clear, um, not to get too um, uh, far behind or ahead of myself because um, uh, I wanted to kind of bring out what verse 3 involves and then, and then move on to uh, the idea that's in verse 4. Um, so now on, you know, on question four, which is verse five, how does one walk in wisdom toward those who are, who are outside? So, um, you know, although the phrase walk in wisdom parallels Ephesians 5 and 15, it meant more there to guard against excess or recklessness. And here it means more to watch out for external dangers um, and specifically in the context of dealing with people who are non-Christians, because that's what those who are outside, as we know, are, is um, non-Christians. And it goes on to say redeeming the time, which basically means buying up the opportunities. Um, and um, so he's really telling them um, to, by the way they speak and act, to reflect the char character of Jesus and to spread the gospel that way by, um, by being wise in that and, um, and watching out for external dangers as they're speaking to those who are on the outside, but taking full advantage of every opportunity that they had. Um, and that's really what that means. So let's move to question five. Um, what is meant by the phrase, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Um, there's some, kind of some interesting ideas here. Um, some commentators think this is divine grace. No, it's, it actually means that our speech should be um, uh, pleasant and sweetened with courtesy. It's basically what it's saying. Now, the idea of seasoned with salt is thought by most to mean that our speech should be filled with piety, um, which is true, <clears throat> no denying that. But Kaufman points out that in Greek writings of the time, seasoned with salt always meant um, laced with a judicious bit of wit or humor. And he goes on to say that he sees no compelling reason why that idea couldn't be contained here. And, you know, if some of you of having conversations with people, you know that you can get away with saying a lot more, even some pretty uh, tough stuff if the conversation's light. So um, that is kind of an interesting thing. And then he goes on to say um, um, that, you, that, may, that you may know how you ought to answer them, uh, answer each one. And that sort of parallels um, in meaning 1 Peter 3.15 where we're told 
to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. But I think here, too, what he's really saying is use your, um, use your speech with grace, seasoned with piety or perhaps even a little bit of lightheartedness or humor or wit, possibly, um, so that you will know how to deal with them. Because remember, you just told them to watch out for external dangers and take advantage of the opportunities so that you will know how to answer them um, when you're dealing with them. So I actually think that um, it's not just be ready to give them an answer, but also these really are instructions on how to give them an answer and, and in, in what manner to give the answer is what I actually think. It's very good to point out what it eliminates and what is not included here. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a great point um, because, um, no, it actually needs to be the opposite of that. Um, it needs to be pleasant and polite. Um, and that really goes along with the Christian character anyway. The only time that, um, you know, that um, Jesus got strong in his wording was like with, with strong rebukes or uh, righteous indignation or that kind of thing. But when we're generally, when we're dealing with people, you know, um, a carrot works better than a stick. You all know that. Um, sometimes, you know, a stick might be needed in secular situations or whatever, but but um, we need to use the carrot as much as we can and be, um, and be uh, polite and courteous when we're speaking to people, especially about the gospel. And, you know, you just think about it, rudeness isn't really going to get you very many converts. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.